Good morning, Door Creek. Now, I got to confess, it's a little sleepy in here, and all I can say is we haven't had, even had turkey yet, so I know it's gray out here, but let's, come on, here we go. So I was at Lambeau Field last week, and it created a great crisis for me. I'm a Bears fan. What in the world does a Bear fan do in Lambeau Field? Well, that, well... That was good. Okay, maybe you are more awake than I thought. Well, I did that the week before, and I was really glad the game I was invited to wasn't the Bear game, because that, I mean, I don't think the Bears played that game. Did you? I didn't see them. So I was conflicted. I mean, it was a really neat thing, and Lambeau Field, come on, it's iconic. You know, I'm a Chicago kid, so I get it. Wrigley Field, It's great, except for you guys are used to having winners in your stadium, and we're not in Chicago. But anyways, so it's cool. I'm I'm into this iconic place, Lambeau. Hadn't been there since it got all built up. It is like a coliseum. It's very cool. But I was completely conflicted, because I'm a Bear fan. And I knew, like, I couldn't wear the Aaron Rodgers jersey. I couldn't do that. I couldn't put on the the 52. I couldn't do that. I I just, what do you do? Because I didn't want to offend the people who invited me. What a gracious thing to go to Lambeau, see a game. So I didn't know. I called a couple buddies. What do I wear? What do I do? And nobody was helpful. They were all just kind of laughing. So I decided, hey, it's going to be cold, and my ski jacket's kind of green. We'll call it good. So I had my, my green ski jacket and had a lot of fun. And the Bears had won earlier, so it was all good. But you get, the, you get what I'm talking about. Like, there's, there's things that don't go together that easy, right? And when the people were listening to Jesus, the religious leaders, man, Jesus just didn't go together with their construct of a follower of God, of, of a rabbi. He's this rabbi. He's this new guy. And who is this new guy? who says that he can forgive sins. That doesn't go together. Rabbis can't do that. Rabbis can point him to God who alone can forgive sins. They're, they're all confused that Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd. Doesn't he get it? That Matthew and his friends, they're tax collectors, they're scumbags. What is this religious guy doing hanging out with these very irreligious people? They don't go together. They don't get that this religious guy who's to keep himself holy according to the ceremonial law laid out very pointedly and clearly in the Old Testament. Why in the world is he touching unholy things like a leper? These things don't go together. And so you meet up with a group of people in Luke, in his gospel in Jesus' day, where some people are just unbelievable fans of him and others are really furious with him. So it got me to thinking, honestly thinking, if I was around in that day, which crowd would I have been a part of? Would Jesus have really ticked me off because he didn't fit my religious thinking and systems? Or would I have been like at the end of the section we're looking at, the group of people that were just running from everywhere, from the coast, from down in Jerusalem, making a beeline, just wanting to hear a word, just wanting to get a touch 
of Jesus? Would I have been more like the town folk of his hometown, Nazareth, that are so mad with what he said about the kingdom of God being for all people, the Gentiles, even the enemies of God, that they take him to the edge of town, to the top of the cliff to push him off? Or would I have been part of the Capernaum crowd that says, Jesus, I know you want to go tell other people about it, but can't you stay? Can't you stay another day? Can't you stay longer? And then I wonder, and by the way, I don't have a quick answer. Oh, I know I would have been a fan. I know just having grown up in the church, I'd have been more likely to feel comfortable with the Pharisees crowd. But then that got me thinking about another thing. And so I wonder, as I live out my life in relationship with people who don't know Christ in my family, in my neighborhood, in the associations I have, I wonder if how I live for Christ, if it's making him more want to know more about Jesus, is it heading him towards being a fan, or is it actually hacking him off and going... And that's why I don't want anything to do with your Jesus. And I wonder how that's working out in your life if you're a Christ follower. Or if you're interested in Christ, I wonder if that's like a big tripping point. Jesus says, I'm coming proclaiming the good news of this kingdom. It's good news for the poor, it's freedom for the oppressed. Release for the captives. I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. I am bringing in the kingdom of God. I'm the king. He's preaching it. His miracles are demonstrating the nature of the king to bring things back to their rightful place to restore it. We're going to see it again in chapter 6. He says, I'm the king and my kingdom is upside down. Because you actually think the way you see life and the way you look at things is right side up. But I'm just going to do this. And I'm going to show you that the things that you think don't go together actually do. And there's things that you're doing that completely don't go together. So in chapter 5, he talked about, I know you've got a trouble. You've got trouble with the fact that my disciples aren't fasting. Refraining from food so that we could give focused attention to God. This is religious activity. This is what religious people do. This is what a rabbi should be teaching his disciples, that we fast. And you guys are a bunch of gluttons. That's he's accused of being a glutton and being a a drunk and hanging out with people that do that. He says, what's the deal? And Jesus says, don't you get it? If you knew who I was, if you knew that I was the promised Messiah, you guys would be throwing a party. It'd be like a wedding. I'm the bridegroom. You don't fast at a wedding. Those things don't go together. You feast. And if you knew who I was, you knew it's time for, you would know it's time for a celebration. He says, your whole construct, it doesn't fit with the heart of God. It doesn't fit with the mission of God. It doesn't go together. It's like an old garment that needs to be patched. And you're willing to destroy a new garment to put a patch from that new garment on the old when it's not even going to look right. And then to get really to the point, he says, 
You're like old wineskins in the expansive beauty and mercy of God's kingdom that I'm bringing in and proclaiming is is like new wine. And you know what? Your wineskin is old. The elasticity is gone. It's all parched and cracked and stiff. And you pour new wine, you pour the, the gospel of the kingdom of God's grace and mercy into your system, into your traditions, it's going to blow it up. It's not going to hold it. New wine and old wineskin destroys both the wineskin and ruins the wine. So he wants to talk to us about things that don't go together. He wants to talk to us that are religious people, like the Pharisees. It's so easy to just paint them with a a big, bold brush and go, and they were just all a bunch of hypocrites. Well, it it didn't all necessarily start that way. These are people that loved God. These are people that loved his word. Does that relate to any of us here? We love God. We love his word. We want to live by his word. We talk about our second value, the Bible's authority, centering our lives on God's truth. This is Luke talking to his friend Theophilus to give him certainty of the things he's been taught about. This is Luke telling people who are Christ followers, hey, we better make sure that as we say we're following God, that we understand what it is that we're to be about. And there's a group of good people that had lost their way. So grab your Bible. Let's catch up with Luke's account in chapter 6. Now, this chapter kind of flows out pretty easy. There's two stories, the first in verses 1 through 5, about breaking the Sabbath, and the second in verses 6 through 11. Then we get to a little section about Jesus choosing the 12 from the greater group of disciples, And then you've got this beautiful picture of people running from everywhere to have Jesus touch them and heal them and cast out these demons that they're traumatized by. So this is a story right here about Jesus ruling over all with mercy for all. And he's calling us all to follow in his steps. That's where this is going, okay? So the first Sabbath story, verse 1. On Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. This was a problem for the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? There you go again. What are you doing? You can't do that. Yeah, Deuteronomy 23 talks about when you're out walking, you're in the field, even your neighbor's field, you can take the grain, but you can't take it with a sickle. You can start harvesting it. You can grab some of, you need to eat a little bit. But hey, we're talking about the Sabbath here. This is that special day that's to be kept holy and set apart from all the other days. What are you doing, Jesus? Jesus answered them. Have you never read what David did, King David, great king of the Old Testament? When he and his companions were hungry, key word there, they were hungry, Jesus' disciples were hungry, he entered the house of God. For Samuel 21 tells us it was at a place called Nob, and the priest was Ahimelech, and he asked Ahimelech for some bread. He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. Ahimelech said, look, I don't have any bread. 
But I've, I've got some of the show bread, the bread of the presence. So the priest, every week on the Sabbath, they'd bake 12 new unleavened breads. It's like some flat bread. There'd be a stack of six, a stack of six. They'd put it on the table of presence. They're in the, in the tabernacle, symbolic of God's presence there. And every week they would take out the old and the only bread, the only persons they could eat that would be the priest and his family. He says, I don't have any bread, but, but I've got some, some bread of the presence. I've got five left. In other words, he's eaten seven of the 12. He's got five left, right? He says, you can have some of that. You can have some of that. So um, he's going to precedence. He's going back to David, who entered in the house of God, and he took the consecrated bread. That's what he's talking about. And he ate what is unlawful only for priests to eat. Hey, he broke the law too. It wasn't a Sabbath law here, but it was a law pertaining to who eats that bread. That bread, by the way, is symbolic of not that we need to feed God. Make sure you make sure that he's always got food. No, that's not what that's about. It's that God always has a table set for his people. That at the heart of the tabernacle, at the heart of the law, is a relationship. And so he says, look, there's a precedence, right? He ate what was only lawful for the priest's eat. And by the way, it wasn't just him, the anointed king, where you might say, well, because of his position, he had the right to do that. No, but he actually gave it to some of his companions. And then Jesus pulls another card, and it's not the precedence card, it's the person card. He says, the son of man, speaking of himself, a term that refers to this coming king and Messiah, Daniel the prophet speaks in this way, this title, the son of man. It's a title Jesus uses of himself. The son of man is Lord. He's master. He's the ruler of the Sabbath. All right, so we got some catching up to do because there's a lot of concept in here that might be really new for us or still confusing for us. So there's the Sabbath concept. So Sabbath just means to stop, Shabbat to stop or to cease. The Sabbath was one day. It was the seventh day. If you look at the command in uh, Exodus 20, here's what we read. In fact, let's just read Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11 together, okay? Out loud together. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." It's the fourth command. It's rooted in creation. When God gave this command to Moses, he calls him back to remember, hey, this pattern already exists. It's existed from the beginning of creation. God creates 
the world in six days, whether it's six literal days or six periods of time, that's not the point here, and he enters into a day of rest. The interesting thing, as you read back in Genesis 1 and 2, every day ends with morning, evening, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, sixth day Adam and Eve's created. On seventh day, when God enters his rest, it never says, and that's the end of the day. In other words, God is still in that period. And when that period started, this day of rest, this Sabbath rest that began in paradise, what that is all about is that's when the relationship starts with God. Sabbath day is all about relationship with God. It's about stopping from the normal things that we call work to focus on God, to enjoy God, to connect our hearts with God, to worship him together. And it's called a sign, the Sabbath day. In the Old Testament, was called a sign of the covenant. There's another word. What's the covenant? The covenant was the promise God made with this people that he chased down. He said, I know you're not the biggest, greatest thing going, but I want to be your God. And I want you guys to be my people. So we're going to come into this covenant relationship. I'm going to promise to be faithful to you, to take care of you. And here's what I'm asking, for you to be faithful to me, to come into this relationship and love my Love my word and do my ways and do my word. Come into this covenant. And circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Circumcision wouldn't be anything you could see publicly. But how we did the seventh day was visible to anyone and everyone that lived around us. That was to be a different day. And that day was to point to the relationship, to the covenant So when you hear covenant, don't think about, okay, there was a legal document and everybody signed it, right? And they signed it in blood. No, no, it's about a relationship. It's about a relationship. The law is flowing out of this relationship. God says, I want to be your God. And here's this law that helps you understand who I am, my character, and what it means to live with me. It's always about relationship. What we're going to run into is a group of people, the Pharisees, that they've lost the concept of relationship. When Jesus summarized the whole law, he says you can summarize it in this way. The greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, and the second is like unto the first. In other words, you can't separate these things out. The law is all about how we love God and how we love our neighbor as ourself. So the Sabbath, it was serious. Rooted in creation, it shows up in this perfect, perfect place called Eden. It shows up in the wilderness before the law is given. Remember, manna comes down from heaven, and God says, you can get it every day except on the seventh day. You're going to get a double portion on Friday so that you have enough on Saturday. It's already there before the law is given, this principle of one in seven. Then it comes at the law, and the law is very clear that this is serious, what you do with this day. This is serious, how you respond to my word, just like it was in the garden. You might not think it's a big deal to eat from that fruit. It's serious. You break off from my word and my ways, you're going to die. Corporal punishment for those who, like the guy who's gathering sticks to stoke his fire to maybe cook a meal, all like, you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath, die. That's corporal punishment. So, obviously, there's a sense of seriousness to it. So, if the Pharisees are around in the Garden of Eden, what they would have done is, 
Adam and Eve, we're going to help you out. Guys, we are going to build this big cage. I mean, we're not just going to put a fence around it. We're going to put a fence over it, around it. We're going to double lock it so that nobody ever can get near it. And if that tree starts growing through the cage and tendrils start, we're going to build another fence. We're just going to protect you from it. It's just the heart of a parent, right? When we see kids, our little kids, getting near danger, crossing it, we're grabbing it. We want to protect. So that, that makes sense. But what happens, what happens is they start losing the distinction between these fences that they're erecting and the command, which is all about a ritual, and the command, which is more than not what you should not do. It's, more, uh, it's not just what you should not do, but it's also about what you should be about. The commands always had the, a negative but it also implied a positive. What would be a, an obvious positive to the fourth command? Work. You should work. Six days, you've got to work. There's a, there's a day of rest that's going to be different than that. The day of rest is not just about what you should not do, but Jesus is going to make it clear in the second story what you should do. So he says, look, Don't you remember what David did? There's precedence here, but he doesn't bank on precedence. What he banks on is who he is. And so Jesus is revealing his identity. He's saying, the reason I can say these things is because I am Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? The Sabbath law was given by God. And I'm over this law. Who else would be over the law of God except for God? He's claiming to be God. And let me tell you, it was not his conduct as much as his claim that incensed and infuriated and anger just welled up in these Pharisees. In fact, at the end of the story in the gospel, the charge that they bring against Jesus is that he claimed to be the son of God. So you may, you may be going, no, I don't think Jesus ever did that. You may be investigating the claims of Christ, the person of Christ. Seriously, it's explicit throughout the Gospels. The reason they have a problem with Jesus is not just his conduct, it's his claim. He claims to be the Son of God. And they are incensed. They're outraged. So, we go to the second story. Verse 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They were setting a trap. Maybe they invited this guy to church so they'd see what Jesus would do. So they watched him closely, right, to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, if he would do something that you're not supposed to do, because healing represented work. In fact, if you go back to the Mishnah, these same Pharisees wrote up 39 categories that constituted work. I mean, let me just read a few of them. It's just wild stuff. So these are all things that constituted work. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, threshing, winnowing, kneading bread, shearing wool, washing wool, spinning wool, weaving, making two loops, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, hunting a gazelle. Oop, that's a problem this weekend. (laughs) 
slaughtering or flaying or salting it or curing its skin, another problem this weekend, scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, taking anything from one domain to another. That's all Sabbath breaking. And then it got so much more detail to say, now, in these other things, let me break it all down. It was just layers and layers and layers upon the other. And so they're waiting to see if Jesus is going to do what he shouldn't do because they're focused on fences. They're focused completely on what is prohibited in the law. And it's interesting how Jesus turns the question. Verse 8. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, I'm assuming that nobody said anything, stretch out your hand. He did so. And his hand, his shriveled hand, was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Mark's gospel says they plotted his murder. They plotted his murder. So what is Jesus' question? Jesus' question is, I know you're so focused on what you can't do on the Sabbath. Let me ask you this. What should you do? Should you do good or evil? Should you save life or destroy it? No answer. No answer. Jesus is showing how they've lost their way. They've been so attentive to these fences that they've erected that the fences now are more important than the word of God. And because they don't have their eyes on the word of God, they don't understand the heart of God. And so there actually could be people suffering around them, needing mercy, like this man with the shriveled hand. And they go, no, we don't do that on Sabbath days. Come back tomorrow. And Jesus doesn't just walk by the guy and says, hey, you know what? Let's... um." Let's follow up after, after service today, okay? He, he, he doesn't just go touch his hand as he's walking in and the guy goes, oh my word. No, he gets him up in front of everybody on the Sabbath. This one command of all the 10 that's never repeated in the New Testament, it is amazing how many times we run into Jesus doing something on the Sabbath that for those people was always the wrong thing on the Sabbath. And he has him stand up. And he says, let me tell you. Let me help you understand. Let me help you interpret what the Sabbath is about. Let me help you understand the nature of the law. It is a gift. It is a gift that reveals the heart of God. It is a gift that reminds us of a relationship with God. And where it shows us that we don't live up to the law, it is that tutor that leads us to the one who is the law keeper, Christ. It's a good thing. So he has him stand up and he says, what are you supposed to do? Good or evil? They don't want to say anything. He says, well, let me tell you what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, you're supposed to give mercy. Jesus, as you watch him exercising Sabbath practice, is always worshiping with people and he's always doing good on the Sabbath. 
That's what he's always about. He's extending mercy to the people that needed mercy, whether it was a level of mercy to his hungry disciples or this man with the shriveled hand who has been greatly limited by the inactivity of that right hand. And he's having mercy on him. He didn't say, wait, come back tomorrow. I do miracles. I do miracles Sunday through Friday. Can't do those on Saturday. And he says, let's do it right now. And they're completely furious. They're furious. So in the miracle, what do we have? Well, Jesus is saying, I just said I'm the son of man. Luke's just presented him as the son of man. Now he's letting us know, he's letting Theophilus know, well, this is why he can make that claim. Because he is God. Look what he just did in this miracle. And so it attests his claim to be God, the son, the, the, the son of man, the Lord of the Sabbath, and it's giving another picture of the nature of, of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and what he's come to do to restore things that are shriveled. And all of a sudden we realize there's two things shriveled in this story, one that we can clearly see and one that we can't. The man's hand clearly see. The Pharisee's heart, my heart, maybe your heart, can't see that as well. It's shriveled. It doesn't have the life of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God coursing within it. It has an empty, dry, dead legalism that concerns itself more with fences than it does with shriveled hands and the needs of people around them. It is not about loving God. It is not about loving their neighbor. It is about justifying yourself on the basis of your ability to keep all that you've put in the side of the fences. And so how does it happen that good men, people that we would call the pastors and the leaders and the missionaries of the church, how is it that they could become so furious with the very one that they were hoping for, the Messiah? Well, how does that happen? When rituals replace relationship, right? That's what happens. When your traditions have more weight than God's word. When traditions are in focus so that we don't see the needs around and we grow to become indifferent. Or even worse, we actually can justify why those people are in need. And if they were just living a moral life like you and me, they wouldn't have those needs. They're just getting what they deserve. When we're duped into thinking that somehow our religious devotion and doing good is what really counts. That actually a relationship gets defined with all these external practices. We lose our way. And the Savior of God is someone that we hate. His kingdom, something we reject. And we hang on to fences and empty formalism instead of the life of God and His grace and His kingdom. So he makes a case that he is the king. He gives us a great insight into the character of the king. And then he calls people to follow him. That's the next passage there in verses 12 and following. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called the disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. 
So disciple simply means a follower. Apostle means a sent out one. It's clear here from the text, right, that Jesus is praying because he needs to know which, who are the 12 going to be? Why 12? Well, I think it has everything to do with God chose the 12 tribes of Israel to be his, his extension and his instrument in this world to bring his saving purposes into play. And Israel failed to be that light to the Gentiles. Israel failed to love God and their neighbor with all their heart. And so he's doing a new work. He's calling this kind of new Israel. We've got these 12 disciples, their followers, but they're from a greater group that has been following Jesus. Who are they to be, Father? Give me wisdom. Who are they to be? And then we have them listed out. These apostles that were sent out, commissioned with the message of the kingdom. It starts with Simon, Peter. What do we know about Peter? Great leader of the church. What do we know about Peter? Uh, he denies Jesus, that he even knew Jesus. Starts with Peter, and look who it ends with. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. That's really interesting. And when you read through the list and you run into guys like Simon the Zealot, and remember that Matthew is the tax collector, you go, wow, he has brought together not only a group of ordinary unschooled men, a least likely group of people to change the world and turn it upside down, but he's, he's brought together things that apparently don't go together. So let me just use Simon the Zealot and Matthew, the tax collector. Simon the Zealot is, I mean, he, he'd be like, really good friends with the, with the Pharisees because he, he had all kinds of patriotic, nationalistic pride. He wants to see Rome out of Israel. He wants to see God's king on the throne, not Caesar on the throne. He is all about Israel. Who's Matthew? Matthew capitulated for his own greedy heart, said, yeah, I'll work for you, Caesar. I'll collect t- taxes for you, Caesar. And he did it in a way where he got rich on the backs of his own people. He's a traitor. You get it? And Jesus brings Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector and he brings them together. That's the power of Christ to bring things that don't go together together to unite diverse things like the church that he's growing and building here at Door Creek, like the church that he has around the world, like the church that we'll see it in heaven where every nation, tongue, and tribe gathered around Christ. What an awesome, awesome God. And what an awesome thing to consider that he chose Judas Iscariot. He was an old wineskin, just like those Pharisees. Jesus didn't fit. And when the tension got so great, he had to either throw out the wineskin or get rid of Jesus. And what did he do? For 30 pieces of silver, he says, you know what, I can't let go of this wineskin. I can't let go of this construct. I can't handle this Jesus. This is not the kind of Jesus I was hoping for. And he throws him out. He hands him over, betrays him with a kiss. And it's really important that what we see is Jesus' mercy isn't just for a man with a shriveled hand. His mercy is for men and women with shriveled hearts. Like Judas, who at the end of the day, Jesus calls him, he calls him friend. He's always holding out mercy and grace to him. It's really fascinating to remember who buries Jesus, a guy named Nicodemus and a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. What, what group were they in? They're Pharisees. 
I'm thinking Paul's, Luke is writing this. He's just spent a bunch of time traveling around the greater part of Asia Minor with this guy named Paul who used to be Saul who was persecuting because he hated Christ and he hated the followers of Christ. He was doing everything he could to intimidate and persecute and get him out of the way that he's thinking about Paul and he's going, oh my word, that's right. He changed Paul's heart, his mercy, even for the Pharisee. And so who becomes a fan? Verses 17 and 19. The people who were very acquainted with their need. Those who were sick. Those who had friends that were diseased. Those who were wrestling with impure spirits or saw them tormenting their children. And they were running from the coast, Tyre and Sidon. And they were running up from the south. And they were making a beeline because they heard about Jesus, wanted to hear his teaching, and they wanted to touch him because they understood power. That is, the spirit was coming from him and restoring things and making things right. Those were the ones who received mercy. The ones who knew they needed it. Who didn't get God's mercy? Who didn't receive receive his grace, the people didn't think they needed it. And who are those people? The good guys. Yikes. Yikes. So I asked a question 2,000 years ago, what would he have been? A fan or a furious, religious, self-righteous person? And I guess this test text asks the question again today. So who are you? Are you a fan of Jesus? Are you furious with Jesus? If you're a fan of Jesus, if we're a fan of Jesus, if this church is a fan of Jesus, then where's our focus? Are we known as a people? Are we known as a church about what we're against? What we're for? Is our focus on empty rituals, building fences? I've got this image in my mind of, of this beautiful house, this beautiful mansion where God says, I want to live with you there, and we don't even want to go there. We just, we just want to make sure that place is protected, and the only thing we focus on, the only activity that we do is on fences if we never get into the house. That's craziness. So if we are a fan of Jesus, then we care about those in need. We care about those who are in misery. We don't ask why they got there. It's not an unfair question, but we go with the mercy of Christ. And I just wonder if we've built fences. I wonder if we've got some old wineskins that would keep us from hanging out with Matthew and his friends, like Jesus did. I wonder if we've got some fences and, and some constructs where we go, you know what? That, that, if, I, if I moved in that direction with those kinds of people, man, that would just kind of mess me up. And I don't think that would be good for me. They, they, they'd represent the leper, the untouchable. I, I wonder if we built these constructs and how we think we ought to worship God that actually is keeping us from the beauty of worship of God, which includes loving my neighbor. I wonder. I wonder what's shriveled around us. And that God would love to see his power and his grace moving in us and through us to bring restoration to those things. Things that are shriveled in our relationships, just dead. Things that are shriveled in our community, in our city, in our nation, in our world. It's the power of the gospel.
to take things that are like this and give them life. Let's pray. God, you have revealed yourself in all your glory, displaying your goodness with these words that I am a merciful God. And Lord, I pray that your mercy would be more clearly seen as we see your Son who displays it page after page, every minute of his life. Jesus, would you become more beautiful in our eyes? Would we see who you are as this king who extends mercy to those who deserve judgment, as this king who took our judgment, as a king who says, I want to have a relationship with you, as a king who allows us to find our rest, not on a day, not in a place, but in you. And I pray, God, that we would be your merciful people in this day that actually see shriveled things and believe your power in your church can change those things. I pray that you'd give life to marriages in this room that are shriveled. I pray that you give wisdom to the parents in this room that we wouldn't lead our kids to rules, but to you. I pray that our hearts would break for all that is twisted and broken in this world. And that we bring you pleasure. And by your grace, there'd be more and more fans of Jesus in this place. For your glory, for the good of a world that is shriveled. We pray, amen.